Good morning. Glad you're here. Would you please pray with me? Well, gracious Father, we thank you for gathering us together this day. Father, we pray that by your grace we might worship in spirit and in truth. Our desire is to exalt your name, to praise you, to thank you, our Father, for sending your Son, to thank you for sending your Spirit, to thank you for saving your people, to worship and adore you. Oh, Father, we need, we need you. Give us yourself. Father, we pray that you bless the fellowship of the saints to our good, and may it be to your glory, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to the 121st division of the Psalms. Psalm 121. And to review something I've talked to you about before, if your Bible is like mine, it probably has an inscription over this psalm, a song of degrees, or maybe a song of ascents. And I've discussed that superscription with you before when we've had a text from one of the songs of degrees. But let me remind you about this. Fifteen of the psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, 15 bear this title, a psalm of degrees or a song of ascents. And these psalms have that same superscription in both the Septuagint and in the Vulgate. Remember that the Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the Bible that Jesus used, the Septuagint. And the Vulgate is the majority text of the Christian Bible. It's the old Latin translation. The Bible that more Christians in Christian history have used than any other Bible. So, Calling these 15 psalms, songs of ascent or psalms of degrees, it's not just Jewish tradition. It's not just Jewish tradition. Christians have been calling these psalms that for as long as we've had Bibles. Sometimes the psalms are called gradual psalms or songs of steps or even pilgrim Psalms. And if you research that title, this superscription that we're talking about, if you research that to try to determine what it means, you'll find there are four views. According to the Jewish scripture called the Mishnah, in the temple there was a semi-circular flight of stairs that led from the court of the men of Israel down to the court of the women. And there were 15 steps on those stairs. And it was upon those stairs that the Levites stood and played their musical instruments on the evening of the first day of the Tabernacles Festival. And some Jewish writers have said that the 15 Psalms got this title, Songs of Degrees, 
or song of ascent from those 15 steps in the temple. That's one view. Other scholars have theorized that the Psalms got the title because of the step-like progressive rhythm in the thoughts expressed in the Psalms. They say they're called songs of degrees because they move forward climactically by means of resumption of the immediate preceding word. And you'll see this in some of the Psalms, but several of them don't have that characteristic. Another view, Theodoret, a church father, explains the 15 hymns as traveling songs of the returning exiles. In Ezra 7.9, the return from the exile is called going up from Babylon. And several of these psalms appear suited to that situation, but others from the group presuppose the temple and its service, which doesn't seem to fit with that exile theme. Probably the most plausible, or at least the easiest to defend, is that these hymns, these psalms, were sung by Jewish pilgrims on their way to the three great festivals of the Jewish year. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And that, that journey that the pilgrims or worshipers made to Jerusalem was often called going up. Going up. Because Jerusalem was on a hill. It was in the hills. And so whether the worshiper came from the south or the north or the west or the east, it was always going up, ascending. So most probably Psalm 121 was very, very familiar to the old covenant people of God. They probably sung this psalm as part of their worship throughout the year, but they probably sung it as they walked along the road together with fellow worshipers on their way up, on their way up to Jerusalem. My brothers and sisters, listen. <laughs> it is still a good practice for us to read psalms and to sing psalms and to learn and to meditate on and be refreshed by psalms. As we travel this road together to the new Jerusalem. Still a good practice. Please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. A song of degrees. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from Jehovah, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved, and he that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Jehovah is thy keeper. Jehovah is the shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Jehovah shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. 
Jehovah shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of Holy Scripture. You may be seated. We've noted before, saints, that when the New Covenant apostles read the Old Testament Scriptures, they read them, listen, they read them Christologically. When we say that the apostles read the Old Testament Christologically, we mean that they read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, in light of that New Covenant in our Savior's own blood. They read the Old Testament through Christ, Christologically. When they read the Old Testament, they put their Jesus glasses on. Jesus, the Savior, the Son of the living God, that is the lens through which the holy apostles of the New Covenant read the Old Testament. They read it through the lens of Jesus of Nazareth. In the apostolic reading of the Old Testament, Jesus himself mediates the Old Covenant texts. So it's through the lens of Jesus that the apostles look back to the Old Testament. And listen, listen, Jesus himself taught his disciples to do this. He's the one who started it. Jesus started it. Jesus looked back to Malachi's prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Malachi 4.5 Jesus looked back to that old covenant text and he told his disciples concerning John the Baptist. This, John the Baptist, is that. Do you realize that? His disciples asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias, or Elijah, is come already. And they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they wished. Likewise also shall the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake to them of John the Baptist. He said, John the Baptist is Elijah. Matthew 17 verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it. If you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Matthew eleven thirteen through 15. Jesus told the Jews, search the scriptures. For in them you think that you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me, he said. John 5, 39. Jesus told them, the Old Testament, it's about me. 
Jesus started this. Jesus started this apostolic reading of the Old Covenant Scriptures. Do you remember after His resurrection out of death, Jesus was walking along the road to a little village called Emmaus? And He met a man named Cleopas and some other sad disciples. And they didn't recognize Him. Didn't recognize Him at all. And the Bible says that Jesus chided them about their lack of understanding of the Bible. He said, Oh fools, and slow of heart to recognize and believe all the things the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses... You know the first five books? And all the prophets. He expounded unto them from the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. He explained to them, this is all about Me. Brothers and sisters, listen. If Dr. Luke got it right, and I believe that he did, then Jesus taught his disciples all the prophets, all of them. All of them were talking about me. Beloved, listen, there's a lot in the Old Testament. There's a lot in the Old Testament. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ taught that the most important thing that's in the Old Testament is Jesus. Jesus taught that He's all through it. From Genesis to Malachi. What's the Bible about? Jesus. Jesus taught His disciples to read the Scriptures Christologically. And they did. They did. They learned this from Jesus. And in the New Testament, we repeatedly see them reading the Old Testament the very way that Christ taught them to. When they look back to Isaiah, what do they see? They look way back to Isaiah. What do they see? They see the Virgin Mary with the Christ child. In Isaiah? Yep. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. When they look back to Malachi, they see John the Baptist, the voice crying in the wilderness. They see the hope in light of the Gentiles, the Lamb of God led to the slaughter. And they see more. They see more. After what Jesus taught them, When the apostles look to the suffering servant of Isaiah, what do they see? That's so obvious now. Look there. Look back at Isaiah. It's the Savior. It's the Savior. And they learned this very well. Listen, they learned how to do this Christological reading very well. We believe that that's how some of these holy men of old were moved to write Holy Scripture. So now we even have new covenant scriptures. The New Testament. 
They learned it so well, so well that when Peter sees this pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he looks back to the old covenant prophet, Joel, Joel's prophecy about the coming of the Lord. And Peter says, this, this that you see here, it's that. This is that. Acts 2 verse 16. They learned it so well that when Philip saw that Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah, right in the place where it says he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb is dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. When Philip saw the eunuch reading that text, and the man asked him, who is this text talking about? Is it talking about the prophet Isaiah? Or some other man? The Bible says, Philip opened his mouth, And began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Acts 8.35 Philip said, thank you for my text. Let me tell you about Jesus. Timothy, you know the Prince of Preachers said his advice to young preachers is take a text and flee to the cross. Listen, beloved, I, I get the idea I get the idea. It wouldn't much have mattered whether the eunuch had been reading in Genesis or Judges or Jonah instead of Isaiah. Wherever he was reading, Philip would have found Christ there. Because Jesus had taught them the whole book. The whole book is about me. From Aurelius Augustine, St. Augustine, we get that classic definition of early Christian exegesis, reading the Old Covenant Scriptures through Christ. And someone's put it to a rhyme, which I'm sure you've heard before, but I love it. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old Concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Revealing. Revealing. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing when he keeps saying, This is that. You read Hebrews? This is that. This is the substance. That, that was just a shadow. This is the substance. That was a shadow. This is the real thing. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Well, our text for the day, saints, is Psalm 121, verse 1. Look there. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh 
my help. And saints, listen, I want to assert this morning that it is in the hills. It's in the hills and on the hills and from the hills that God has sent our help. In the hills, from the hills and on the hills. That's where God has sent our help. And along with the psalmist, listen, beloved, we too should look to the hills. Will you look to the hills with me this morning? Can we look to the hills? Our God has a long, long history of providing great things from His people or for His people on hills. It seems, it seems that in the pristine creation, when a righteous man and a righteous woman were living together in a garden, a paradise, that garden was on a hill. Of the garden called Eden, we're told this, listen, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. There's Bedellium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same as that which compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the third river is Hittichel, that is which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates, Genesis 2, 10 through 14. Well, well, listen, beloved, if, if water flows downhill, and you know that it does, then Eden must have been elevated. It was on a hill or a mountain. When the wickedness of man became great upon the earth, so great that God determined to destroy humanity from the earth by a, a great flood of water, he commanded his servant Noah to build an ark, a great boat to bear his family through the judgment of the flood. And after 150 days of water, God caused that ark that Noah had built to rest upon a great hill. On a hill in the mountain range called Ararat. And Noah lived. Noah lived. When God would test the faith of the very first Jew, our father Abraham, when he would picture for the first time that doctrine that we call substitution, he led Abraham up into the hills. And there on a hill in the land of of Moriah, God provided Himself a lamb for a burnt offering right there on Mount Moriah in the hills. And Isaac, the son of promise, was delivered. And Isaac lived. When God would give His people His holy law, 
That means by which He marked them out from all the pagans around them. When He would write that holy constitution for His old covenant people, He brought them to a great hill, even to a mountain. And there in the wilderness of Sinai, on that hill, God gave His people His holy law. The Bible tells us that when Solomon would build the temple, that house for God that the Almighty wouldn't allow his father David to build, when Solomon would build that house, the Bible tells us that he built that temple on a hill. Then Solomon began to build the house of Jehovah at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. Huh. Interesting. Where the Lord had appeared to David his father in the place where David had prepared the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. When God would demonstrate the folly of idolatry and the wisdom of the worship of the true God, he called his mighty prophet to a hill, to a mountain called Carmel. And there God's one prophet contended with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the groves. And there on the hill, the true God, the living God, answered Elijah's prayer with holy fire. Fire on the mountain. Lightning in the sky. Listen, beloved. When Moses, the old covenant lawgiver, gave the old covenant people of God the law, it was on a hill. It was on Mount Sinai. And when Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the new covenant lawgiver, gave His holy law to the new covenant people of God, It was on a hill. The Bible says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed, 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 blessed. You have heard it said, but I say. Matthew chapter 5. On a hill. On a hill. Saints, listen. We should look to the hills. Beloved, we should look to the hills. When our Savior was tempted by the evil one, His great victory over that satanic temptation was on a hill. The devil taketh Him up into an exceeding high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. 
Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11. And do you remember when our Savior would ordain the twelve? He did it on a hill. In Mark 3, verses 13 through 19, the Bible says, He goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came to him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, which betrayed him. And do you remember when God Almighty would demonstrate to the apostles the superiority of Jesus, even over the law, even over the prophets? Jesus is greater than Elijah. Jesus is greater than Moses. God did it on a hill. Jesus taketh Peter and James and John his brother and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him! Matthew 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Hear Him, says the Almighty. Hear my Son. Hear Jesus. On the night before His crucifixion, Our Savior celebrated the last Passover. And you remember the things that happened on that black, dark night. Satan possessed Judas Iscariot. The Bible says Satan entered into him. John 13, 27. And at his last Passover meal, Jesus changed it. He changed it and made it into the Lord's Supper which we'll celebrate today. He prophesied about His coming death, and He drank wine and ate bread with His disciples, and He made the bread and the wine holy symbols of remembrance for what He was doing for His people. And you remember what happened at the end of their communion. And you remember because we do the same thing. They sang together. And the Bible says when they had sung in him, they went out. They went out. 
But did you know I didn't finish the quotation? Because they went out to a hill. Matthew 26.30 says, When they had sung in Him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And it was called the Mount of Olives because on this hill there were olive orchards. And there was an olive press there in a garden. The garden on the hill was called the Garden of Gethsemane. Because in Syriac, Gethsemane means oil press. The garden with the oil press. And you know, in a hill, on a hill, in a garden, begins the great drama, which is the passion of our Lord. <laughs> but brothers and sisters, listen. There's another hill. There's another hill that we should look to. And it's a hill far away from here. But I believe that many of you have seen it. By faith. It's a hill called Golgotha. The place of a skull. The Greek word for skull is kraniao. You hear cranium? But Golgotha was the Aramaic word for skull. And it was transcribed from the Aramaic into the Greek because that's what the Greek speakers called it. Dr. Luke calls the hill Calvary. And that's Latin for skull. And probably that's what the Latin speakers called it. Have you seen that hill? By faith, have you seen that hill? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. And friend, what happened? What happened on that hill? Well, up Calvary's mountain, one dreadful morn walked Christ my Savior, weary and worn, facing for sinners death on the cross, that He might save them from endless loss. Beloved, listen... What happened on that hill was death. And what happened on that hill was life. It was death for our Savior. And His death means life for you and me. I think the older I get, the less I understand the atonement, the doctrine of the atonement. The older I get and the more I study it, the more I find it to be broader, deeper, and wider than I've ever understood. But there is an understanding of faith. The writer of the Hebrews says that it's through faith that we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Do you understand that? 
What? By faith, I understand that. So that the things that are made weren't made of anything that appears. What was it made out of? You understand that? By faith, I do. Hebrews 11.3 By faith, listen friend, by faith I understand this gospel word. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Here's what I understand. What happened on that hill? It put my sin away. What happened on that hill put my sin away. And since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. So there was death on that hill, but there was life on that hill too. Now listen, friend, brother, sister, can you say with me, Christ died for me? Can you say that? Jesus died for me. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that prince of preachers, was an old man near death, he told a friend, quote, My theology now is found in four little words. Jesus died for me. He said, I don't say that this is all I would preach if I were to be raised up again, but it is more than enough for me to die on. Jesus died for me. Saints, listen, you you know that death could not hold our Lord Jesus. The Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. And since our Savior had no sin, He had no wages coming. And the Bible says of our Savior, God hath raised Him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Acts 2.24 Death and hell had no claim, no claim on our Savior, and the grave could not hold him. And beloved, listen. Listen. The hope of resurrection that we have, the hope of everlasting life, it's not based on the fact that we've never sinned. Listen, we have sinned. The hope that we have of everlasting life and resurrection out of death is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The hope that we have is that death cannot hold us either because it will have no claim upon us. Listen. Because our sins are gone. You ask me why I'm happy? Well, I'll just tell you why. Because my sins are gone. 
And when I meet the scoffers who ask me where they are, I say, my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood on the cross of Calvary, as far removed as darkness is from dawn in the sea of God's forgetfulness. That's good enough for me. Praise God. My sins are gone. Brother, sister, listen. Listen. What Jesus did in his cross work on that hill, it saved us. It saved us. And listen, it is saving us. And listen, it will save us. He forgave our sins. He forgives our sins and he will put our sins away. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. And no one can lay anything to our charge. Our sins are gone. Friend, have you looked to that hill? To bleak Golgotha? To the place of the skull? To Mount Calvary? On that hill, the greatest crime, the greatest crime in all of history was committed by wicked, wicked men. And on that hill, the greatest sacrifice ever offered was offered. Our own Savior sacrificed Himself for us there. And this man, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 12. Well, there's another hill I want to remind you about, and it's a hill in Galilee. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. On a hill, on a hill in Galilee, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ commissioned His apostles to spread His teaching Throughout the earth. And friend, listen, listen. If you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, it's because the teaching of Jesus and His glorious gospel came to you where you are. You ain't in Galilee. Are you observing the words of Jesus? And are you keeping His commandments? Because that's what His disciples were supposed to spread. And I believe they did. 
And because of their obedience in Plano, Parker, in Texas, we've heard the gospel. (sighs) Praise God. Praise God. One more hill. This one more hill. In his old age, in a time of persecution in the Roman Empire, the beloved Apostle John was exiled to an island off the coast of Greece, an island called Patmos. And while John was there, the Savior gave him a heavenly vision. And John recorded that in the book, Revelation. I want you to hear hear this apostolic vision. This is from chapter 21. But listen, the beloved apostle writes and he says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And a great wall, high, with twelve gates. And at the gates, twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And in them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city. And the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth foursquare. And the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. And the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall was as it was of jasper. And the city was like pure gold, like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, Every gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God enlightened it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and their honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter it. 
to it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, verses 10 through 27. Brothers and sisters, listen. From the high hill to which God's Spirit carried him, the beloved Apostle John saw the new Jerusalem, the recreated city coming down to earth from heaven. And from this high hill, From this high hill, the beloved Apostle John ratifies the prophecies of Isaiah and of Peter. You remember? Quoting God, the prophet Isaiah prophesies, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Isaiah 65, 17. And... As the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith Jehovah, so shall your seed and your name remain. Isaiah 66, 22. And the Apostle Peter writes, We, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. 2 Peter 3, 13. So when John from this high mountain sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, what is he seeing? What's he seeing? Well, I believe he's seeing a vision of the new earth. And the description, listen, the description that he offers is not of some ethereal city in the sky. Rather, His visionary perception is of a beautiful capital city of the redeemed upon earth. A new earth. And the new Jerusalem will be upon a great hill called Mount Zion. And the redeemed of the Lord shall be there and they shall live The writer to the Hebrews confirms this when he says to the redeemed, listen, this is from Hebrews 12. You are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You are come to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. You are come. You are come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You are come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we Turn away from him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. 
And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things which are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Well, the psalmist said, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence cometh my help? Eden, Ararat, Moriah, Sinai, Mount Carmel, unnamed hills of temptation, ordination, transfiguration, Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. Golgotha, Calvary, a Galilean hill, and Mount Zion, the city of the redeemed. Below, listen, are you looking to the hills? Let's look to the hills. Lift up your eyes to those hills and especially to Calvary, friend. Our help's coming. It's come. And it is coming from the hills. Please stand with me for prayer. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, Thou hast led me singing to the cross where I fling down my burdens and see them vanished. Where my mountains of guilt are leveled to a plain where my sins disappear though they are the greatest that exist and are more in number than grains of fine sand. Oh, there is power in the blood of Calvary. Power to destroy sins more than can be counted even by one from the choir of heaven. Thou hast given me a hillside spring that washes clear and white. And I go as a sinner to its waters, bathing without hindrance in its crystal streams. At thy cross there is free forgiveness for poor and meek ones and ample blessings that last forever. The blood of the Lamb is like a great river of infinite grace with never any diminishing of its fullness as thirsty ones without number drink of it. O Lord, forever will Thy free forgiveness live that was gained on a hill of blood. In the midst of a world of pain, it is a subject for praise in every place, a song on earth an anthem in heaven, its love and virtue knowing no end. Oh, thank you for Calvary. I have a longing for the world above where multitudes sing the great song. For my soul was never created to love the dust of fallen earth. 
Though here my spiritual state is frail and poor, I shall go on singing Calvary's anthem. May I always know that a clean heart full of goodness is more beautiful than the lily. That only a clean heart can sing by day and by night. And thank you that such a heart is mine when I abide at Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen.